Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to episode 10 of Through the Eyes of Joey. Today on this podcast, I will be taking you, my dear family and friends, on a journey back in time to a location where a lot of wild and wonderful life and family events took place. Chicago and beyond. Uh, This episode is going to start with what I had said in the last episode, nine, I would be responding to uh, a family member by the name of Georgia Bowden. I would be responding to her email that she sent to me on um, March 10th. And um, when I had talked about Nora's email, you know, I had said May. It came in in May. I had to correct myself. So I've, I'm getting these emails from some family members. So uh, Georgia sent me an email Tuesday, March 10th. And she had about six or seven questions. And so I thought they were really good questions. And I want to read them to you. And then I will respond uh, with my answer that I gave to Georgia. Her first question was, um, let's see, she, I'll start the, the email with, she said, just listened to episode seven. I have some questions. One. What is death by artificial feeding? Well, that's a good question, Georgia. Uh, The cause of death listed on the death certificate for Clara Bowden in 1916 uh, lists two causes of death. One is malnutrition. And the secondary cause of death is artificial feeding. So, of course, we read that and we're like, hmm, well, what's, you know, you have this image like something being pushed down into her stomach through a tube. But um, death by artificial feeding um, is really best explained to all of you um, with a really, really good medical article that was presented um, in 1925, actually. It came through the International Journal of Epidemiology, and the title of the white paper was Review of Causal Factors in Infant Mortality by Dr. Robert Morse Woodbury, United States Department of Labor, uh, Children's Bureau, Publication Number 142, Washington, Government Printing Office, 1925. This particular white paper was put together and basically written by Dorothy Swain Thomas, but it was a paper that was used in 1925 to discuss this very question that um, Georgia asks uh, about artificial feeding. It addresses what, what's going on here, you know, when we're seeing this kind of high rate of mortality. Um, I'll just read the article to you. It says, this is an excellent study and evaluation of the causal factors in infant mortality. Dr. Woodbury has made a careful analysis of data collected by investigators for the Children's Bureau in eight American cities in selected years between 1911 and 1916. The eight cities include a wide range of industrial activities and the results found in this study may therefore be considered fairly typical of urban conditions throughout the country. Uh, The chief criticism of his findings and the data is the doubtful validity of combining years for different cities, particularly such data as the earnings of the father, which would be virtually affected by changes occurring in wages and employment. And of course, also what they're trying to say is, well, if you've grouped together a bunch of data between the years of 1911 and 1916, and you're calling that good with respect to what the father made, you, you also have to take into consideration, well, what were the economic factors going on? But then they come down to this little point. They say Dr. Woodbury shows a wholly admirable appreciation of the limitations of his data and of the impossibility of the complete isolation and final evaluation of the factors involved. His results are, therefore, most trustworthy and have a greater degree of finality than is usual in investigations of this sort. The primary analysis concerns the immediate or pathological causes of infant deaths and their relation to the factors of age, sex of the infant, 
seasonal conditions, and month of birth. In these eight cities, causes particular to early infancy account for one-third of the deaths. Gastric and intestinal diseases for three-tenths of the deaths. Respiratory diseases for one-sixth. The underlying factor of the first of these categories is the condition and care of the mother during confinement. Gastric and intestinal diseases fluctuate with climate conditions and are also highly correlated with the type of feeding. Respiratory diseases are also partly a function of climate and very greatly among the several national groups. The rates for these categories are respectively one and one half, six and four times greater than corresponding rates, say, in New Zealand, which suggests that with optimum conditions, much infant mortality is preventable. There was an excessive mortality of infants born to mothers under 20 and over 40. In the data, for all except first births, however, this excess was largely accounted for in young mothers by short interval births and low economic status, and in old mothers by relatively great economic pressure and high order of births. The interval between births is also important. The mortality rates being highest for infants born at short intervals after preceding births and the lowest for infants born at intervals of four or more years. This difference could only partly be explained by differences in the age of the mother, order of birth, and economic factors. An infant's chance of life was also diminished if the mother became pregnant during its first year of life, largely because of the necessity of the artificial feeding of such infants. Mortality varied also with the type of birth, being excessive for the prematurely born, for twins, triplets, and for infants whose mothers were delivered instrumentally. An extremely important cause underlying many other factors was the type of feeding. Quote, the mortality among the exclusively artificially fed averaged between three and four times that among the exclusively breastfed. So mortality rates among artificially fed infants was between three and four times higher than that of breastfed. Artificially fed babies are babies who were fed in those days. Um, well, shall I tell you what some of them did? They would take water. Uh, they would put a little bit of cow's milk in it, so they'd mix that up. Uh, sometimes the parents would chew bread or bits of tiny bread in their mouth, and then they would mix that into the water and the cow's milk. This is the early version of formula. Um, and so artificially fed children were children who were not breastfed. They were being fed through alternate means, maybe a, a powder of some sort. Um, but what they were finding, and I will continue reading this article, this white paper, but as a digression, what they were finding was when they had dirty milk, so the parents would say, okay, the mother's not breastfeeding. Maybe she's breastfeeding for a couple of months and now she goes back to work. They create this false milk, so they take cow's milk. It's not pasteurized or sanitized, might have bacteria in it. So they take that, they, they put it, cut it with some water. If the water's not clean, then we have, you know, maybe dirty water. And then what they're doing is, is maybe they're putting in some kind of other substance to thicken it up. Some dealers, milk dealers, were not just dirty milk dealers, which Chicago tried to do away with, as, as, which they finally did. Dirty milk dealers were, were creating these 
milk replacements for breast milk for babies, and they were mixing the water with chalk. That's right, chalk. You know, chalk that you use on a chalkboard? And these babies were just so sick. And so they were dirty milk dealers, and they were, they were held accountable for it because of the high mortality rate. So Georgia, artificial feeding of a baby is simply giving them, well, today it would be formula. Okay, so this goes on. This says housing congestion was an important causative factor even after allowing for differences in the national groups and in the earnings of the father. Of the direct economic factors, the employment of the mother during pregnancy was important. The mortality among infants of mothers employed outside the home was highest. Of those gainfully employed in the home was the next highest mortality rate. And of those not gainfully employed, the lowest mortality rate for infants. The employment of the mother away from the home exerted an influence, quote, irrespective of any correlation with nationality of mother or with father's earnings, end quote. The employment of the mother during the first year of the infant's life was found to be an effective cause of mortality only when the employment was outside the home. This was partly explained by a tendency towards early artificial feeding of such infants and by the overweighting of this group with certain nationalities and with infants whose fathers earned low incomes. Even allowing for all these factors, there was an excess, quote, due probably to the lack of care, which only the mothers who remained at home could give, end quote. The earnings of the father are closely correlated with infant mortality rates. The chain of causation linking the father's earnings and infant mortality showed an intimate connection between the extent and quality of prenatal care, the gainful employment of the mother during pregnancy, the greater dangers of artificial feeding in the lower income groups, although artificial feeding is less frequent among those groups, if the mother did have to go to work in the lower income groups, she could no longer could breastfeed. She wasn't home. She might be in a factory or doing what maybe Helen did. And so they had to resort to artificial feeding, the uh, created milk. So the unsat and and unsatisfactory housing conditions of the lower economic groups, income groups, and the employment of the mother during the first year of the infant's life. This summary of Dr. Woodbury's results suggests the tremendous complexity of the data and the close interrelationships of the various causes of infant mortality. His results suggest the theoretically preventable nature of a large part of infant mortality, so much of which is ultimately to be attributed to poverty and ignorance. How far it can be reduced practically is a question in the future. Maternity clinics, education of mothers, birth control, and various forms of social insurance suggest themselves as possible partial solutions. So this was from 1925. This was at a time, by the way, they were coming to terms with the working class, how they didn't have maternity leave. Um, they didn't have nursery rooms or breastfeeding rooms where uh, a mother could pump breast milk. I mean, they didn't have any of these provisions in place. There was no time off. And if the father was working a lower, in lower income job or a job that didn't pay well, the mother was forced out of the home very quickly and these babies were left to the care of people who would artificially feed them. There was, and we didn't, you know, when you're not at a certain level in life, you can't even afford a wet nurse. And that's what wet nurses were about. Uh, these were women who would come in and breastfeed your baby for you. It was simply to keep things sterile or to give um, body immunity uh, advantages to the baby. It was to prevent the baby from um, experiencing any kind of uh, bacteria that might be in this milk that you're creating. And of course, it also helped the baby to feel bonded by skin to maybe not a mother, but at least by a wet nurse. So it helped all the way around with um, 
cortisol levels in the baby uh, and stress factors that the baby's body goes through in the first couple of months of life. So that is what artificial feeding is. Um, Georgia asked another question. She said, in reference to baby Clara, the malnutrition and artificial feeding, I'm trying to piece together, was Michael at work in a post office or was he watching kids and could he have been inept at infant care? Well, I had said I have a hypothesis on this and that I would discuss it in the upcoming episode. I did in um, the last episode nine and the chronology of timelines and addresses and where I also explained each death and what it said on the death certificate. I had mentioned that for many years, it had been told to us that Helen was a nurse who worked in psychiatric care or something of that nature, but she was working graveyard shifts. And a lot of times people do this. I mean, even today, you'll have the husband working day, day shift, the mother works a night shift, and then that way they are, always have one parent home taking care of the kids. So we know Michael Bowden was a barber for quite some time. There in, in all of the census, the, uh, the federal census um, statistics gathered from the time that he was here, he, there in Chicago, starting around 1908, 1909, the census never indicated that he was a barber. Um, there were a couple of times where you could see that Helen, it puts her as head of household. But, it, it, you know, he was 10 years older almost than she was, and so she was still working, and he's not clearly retired. But in the early days, it did not say he was a barber. And then it comes up pretty soon. He starts to show up as a clerk. And that's all I get uh, on that is clerk. But then as we're moving toward 1919, the in 1920, now the federal census says postal clerk. So maybe the clerk was a postal clerk all along or whatever it was, but that's what he was doing. Um, and it, she asked, was he watching the kids? Yes, he probably was. Even Joey had indicated that he would cook meals for her uh, when uh, Helen was out of the home working. And Joey Bowden indicated that he was a very good cook. So he did do that. And we also have statistics and data to indicate as this article I just read to you from 1925 on the causal factors of infant uh, mortality. The last sentence basically says maternity clinics, education of mothers, birth control, and various forms of social insurance suggests as partial themselves as possible partial solutions. Yes, between the eight years of progress, 1915 and 1923, when William Hale Thompson was the mayor, uh, the Department of Health put together a, a program where they would go out to these stations they were called, you know, it, they would have milk stations, basically, where you could go and buy the milk that you would use for artificial feeding because you weren't breastfeeding. So you'd go to the milk station, but what they started to do is they started to hand out pamphlets and talk to mothers about cleanliness, hygiene, uh, the parent washing their hands after they changed the poopy diaper, or after they themselves go to the bathroom, before they start to feed the baby. Uh, they were doing a lot of parent education, and it was really important because they were finding that, just like the article says, some, you know, the, maybe some ignorance about proper hygiene. Um, it, if they could reach out to these parents somehow, they didn't know how to get to them, but they got to them at the, at the milk stations. I can't imagine that Michael Bowden ever went to a milk station, but he might have. Um, so... The one thing I think that would have been also key for addressing Michael's ineptness, if he had it, Helen was a nurse. 
I mean, yes, she's working in the psychiatric unit, et cetera, et cetera. But you'll remember Joey Bowden's uh, words when she talked about Helen taking those courses at the University of Chicago. She took criminology and all these different courses. But she also knew about nutrition, too. So we know already, and it has been established, that Helen was a nurse. So Helen had the basics down. And Helen also knew about nutrition, as Joey had said. So my point is, is if Michael Bowden was inept in any way, shape, or form, I'm sure he had a wife right there who was going to be happy to show him how to do it properly. My other theory about this, though, is, and I shared this with Georgia privately when I responded back to her, but um, uh, I remember my mother talking about the fact that my grandfather, her father, and this is, you know, almost TMI, but when you have that many babies dying, I I don't want anyone to think that there was some funny business really going on here, but my mom had said that um, Michael Bowden, her father, had a lot of dysentery or had irritable bowel syndrome. He had... um, some kind of diarrhea at times. And she said she remembered it all through Michael Bowden's life. So perhaps he always had something that he picked up, maybe like a traveler's dysentery or some kind of bacteria that thrived or lived in a kind of a parasitical way in his gut, maybe his whole life. It might have been enough that he could control it, but it was chronic. These individuals who have this kind of thing, and I remember my mother talking about it when she developed colon cancer and she started talking about colon history, et cetera, because I was asking her about it. And she then disclosed to me about her dad and he had this. When I was doing all this research work, I started to think, you know, people like this who have chronic lifelong diarrhea, uh, either they have a bug, which is what I said earlier about Shigella. It's, a bact- it's an E. coli bacteria, but either they're carrying something like a parasite or they have something going on in their gut. And what they don't realize is they can actually transfer that bacteria to a baby, their baby. And if he's hand washing enough and he's really aware of his hygiene habits while he was taking care of the kids at night and in the middle of the night, while Helen was at her nursing, doing her nursing duty, her nursing shift, we're good to go. But if he's taking care of the baby, you know, and it's in the middle of the night, and maybe he was tired, maybe he had to go to work the next day, maybe he didn't wash his hands enough, uh, maybe he did carry some kind of bacteria in his gut all his life, and he wasn't even realizing that, unfortunately, he was transferring this bacteria to his babies. And because of the fact that they were artificially feeding their children past a certain point, maybe when Helen ran dry, uh, then you add on the artificial feeding and maybe dirty milk, uh, these kids really didn't have a chance. Of the couple of the kids who had lobar pneumonia and bronco pneumonia, uh, that could have been also, it talked about in this paper here, could, be, could have been uh, climate. It's cold. They moved frequently from place to place to place to place. Um, probably not the best living conditions. Seems like they're really struggling financially. And um, this kind of habit habitat is really not great overall for the care of, of an infant. So how inept he was, he probably was to a certain degree. Uh, and unfortunately, they, they paid a huge price for their ineptness and their inability to, to raise their, their level of care by maybe even buying a home or something. But anyway, uh, her next question, I'm thinking Michael was probably consumed with guilt for leaving wife number one, that would be Margaret Mead. So depression may have ruined him, question mark. Um, I said, I, this is my answer. I said, I feel that Michael was able to compartmentalize his feelings quite well after he became a father. 
Helen Bowden, his daughter from Margaret Mead, died from uh, an enterocolitis. So enterocolitis is bloody stool bacteria. Entritis is, is, is basically uh, caused again by Shigella, E. coli, um, bacteria, dirty milk, or whatever. So, uh, so she died from enterocolitis. Um, but when she died in September of 1900, she was just a baby. Michael was actually listed as living in Hendricks, Mackinac, Michigan, as a boarder, working as a barber. So unless he was going back and forth between Michigan and St. Peter, Minnesota, he actually wasn't there when his daughter, his little baby daughter died. He would have had nothing to do with her dying, and he would have had nothing to do with knowing how she died, with the um, the colitis, the entritis, the enteritis. She, he, he was not there, unless he came back. I don't know when he cared for her, but he was a boarder in Mackinac. And this is consistent, actually, with Joey saying that she thought her parents met or married in Michigan or Wisconsin. Did he go to visit them, Margaret Grace and the baby, Helen? And then the baby died, and then he returned back to Michigan I mean, did he feel responsible for her death hmm. or guilty? I don't know. And Margaret Mead was taking care of her hat business. Nora Campbell, my niece, asked me, was Margaret Mead uh, the anthropologist or the famous Margaret Mead? No, our Margaret Mead was a lady who was a milliner. She, she, she had a hat business. She made hats. And then her business went into... She dabbled in some clothing, but mostly women's Victorian undergarments and lingerie and hats and those kinds of things. So, you know, if Michael Bowden is living, and he was living in Michigan, and the baby is getting sick, his baby from his first marriage, uh, Helen Bowden, is getting sick, and then we know Margaret Mead, the wife, his first wife, he left, is running a hat business. My question is, I mean, who was responsible? Who was taking care of baby Helen? The Michigan census was taken on June 1st, 1900. Was Michael living there most of the time in Michigan and visiting Flandreau? It's possible the census taker was given this information about the names of the borders and their stats by the landlord it could be possible that Michael was actually back in Flandreau in September when the baby died. But on paper, Michael is clearly not living in Flandreau, South Dakota then. Joey said Michael cooked for her a lot, which does suggest uh, Helen Bowden was at work and Michael Bowden was preparing meals for Joey once she did come to live with them from the convent house. And, but as a healthcare worker, I just have to say, I wonder, did he wash his hands well? Did he carry a lifelong bacteria or parasite that he inadvertently spread to his babies once he was feeding them? If he had a lifelong illness, my mother said he had a lot of diarrhea, she noted, and this is again, I said that. Maybe he just didn't understand, you know, good hand-washing techniques, and he kept infecting his infant babies over and over again. Now, I also told Georgia that MJB's, and I call him MJB, Michael uh, James Bowden, his profile and character even from a young age, suggests that he had ideas about things, like how women should act. And he was, it was very black and white for him. And it's not to suggest he was completely without empathy or feelings, but I do believe I've researched about him, and I, he was not truly interested in having children at all. I mean, my feelings about Michael was that children, in his view, were a financial burden, and they required too much emotional and physical attention. The women, I would, would feel he would think should take care of the children, not the man. But, ironically, the women Michael James Bowden chose or fell in love or fell into a relationship with, Margaret Mead and Ellen Egan, were very high-functioning women who had their own dynamic and demanding careers. I mean, they were the rulers of their roost in a way. So perhaps 
Initially, Michael Bowden's attraction to them was from a nurturing point of view, as in these highly capable women would be able to take care of him. I mean, I think he wanted a passive, easy life while his women did it all. His own mother was a bit cool and uh, distant. Maybe he was initially attracted to women like his mother, even though he did not actually feel very warm and fuzzy about his mother. His mother, Bridget Bowden, in her will of January 29th, 1915, renders her rather scathing final opinion of her own son, Michael. So obviously she wasn't very impressed with his choice of a career, the showbiz silliness stuff, or perhaps his lack of interest in a solid academic education like the other two brothers did, and the Bowdens were well known for, doctors and lawyers and tax attorneys, etc., so, you know, later in life, in this will and testament his mother had drawn up, it just says it all. Uh, and I'll read you her will after I finish this email, but um, she makes no bones about it. I mean, she, she leaves everybody everything, and she specifically says, I'm not leaving Michael Bowden, my son, anything, and here's why, or here's what it is. But um, I think Michael Bowden was a big disappointment to her, and to the Bowden family in general, which, yeah, wasn't good, you know, for him. But I think what compelled Michael Bowden to brood later in life was not so much from guilt per se, but I think from a sense of loneliness. So as Georgia suggested, maybe depression ruined him or sadness. I, I think she's right. I think depression set in. Uh, when Michael's life uh, came to a rather sad realization. You know, you reap what you sow. Yeah? And he attached very little of himself and his time to his children. His wives were busy, and once they had children and a busy career, they were no longer fussing and clucking over him. And he acted out with less than sterling behavior. I mean, he wanted the attention of his wives, and he was very dapper, and he had the cologne, and he knew how to take care of himself and look and smell good. Um, but, you know, I mean, his wives had to, other things to do and kids that uh, took them away from him. So for many reasons of Michael Bowden's own doing, and as he aged, he found solace with the bottle and passing friendships at the local pub. He blew more than a few paychecks, and I'm talking about the entire paycheck, from what Joey Bowden told me at the saloon. He would get the paycheck on a Friday. He'd go to the saloon. Helen Bowden, by the way, knew this two, the couple of saloons. She'd go in and she'd talk to the, to the saloon owner and say, I told you not to do that. But, you know, what are you going to do? But he would blow the entire paycheck at the saloon. And how he did it was he would keep buying rounds for everyone once he had, you know, got a little jag on. Remember the jag on from that uh, Flandro article? Michael would get a little jag on and he became Mr. Daddy Warbucks. He started buying rounds for the entire bar. Rounds for everyone, he'd say, my mother said. And before you knew it, he just spent all of the paycheck that he got that day. The paycheck that's supposed to last because he made it that in two weeks worth. So then he would toddle home. He was a very happy drunk, my mother would say. But he would hit the door, and there was an angry and bitter Helen Bowden who would not let him sleep in the house to sleep it off. So instead, she would tell him to sleep on the Davenport outside on the porch. She had to go to bed, she'd say. I have to go to bed. I have to go to work in the morning. You sleep outside, much to the chagrin and sadness of little Joey, who was really too innocent to understand the complications of the relationship and, and what Helen and Michael's dynamics were. So that's where I think Michael kind of ended his life and maybe the depression and sadness was based upon a lot of those things. Um, Georgia said, let's see, I'm dying to understand more about Mary Bowden, always at a boarding school, so bizarre. Yes, it was. And 
I will be uh, talking about Mary Bowden in another episode. Joey Bowden has her own written words about her sister. Uh, There's not a lot, but I'm going to be going into a whole episode of Mary Bowden, so we'll get to know Mary Bowden a little bit more. Uh, Georgia also asked about, she said, "I, I think Mary Bowden had two daughters, and she names them Georgiana and Maureen. And do you know them? She said, do you know anything about them? Yes, I do. They're my cousins. I do know about them. I just spoke with Georgiana the other day. Uh, we talked for about three hours on the phone. And I will also be sharing a little bit about those uh, two fine women with, um, with you as well. They are the daughters of Mary Bowden. Um, and then... She asked, could Helen have been punishing by making the kids go away to boarding school? Could Helen have been punishing Michael by sending his daughters away or protecting them? Question mark. And I answered, I think, I think Helen was protecting her daughters uh, far more than, or more than because of a few different issues and reasons than just protecting them from Michael Uh, Perhaps he was uh, not showing signs of intense interest in caregiving. Perhaps he was, um, perhaps he did relate to Helen that, you know, he, she should be home taking care of the kids. But then she probably said, how can I? We don't have the money. So maybe there were different reasons. And maybe by putting the kids in the care of a a proper facility that uh, had more time and attention and skill set, for taking care of infants like an orphan house or run by nuns like the Good Shepherd House. Um, these maternal figures, these nun figures, um, might probably provide better care overall. And so there are a d- bunch of different reasons, I think. But I think she was driven. I think this police career of hers drove her. And she was going to make this career happen for a number of reasons, with or without a man on the home front. So when we talk about Michael Bowden's depression or sadness or regret or remorse later in life, yeah, I mean, Helen got to a certain point, I think, where she just, she didn't care if he came or went. She loved him, obviously. I think she loved him very much. But perhaps after a certain point, she realized um, she was going to be a cop and whether Michael Bowden was there or not, this is going to be happening. And she learned to live her life as best she could without the help and financial aid of a reliable and consistent husband. Uh, So then Georgia responded back and she said, Oh, Michael Bowden, she's referring to in our family, he was described as the quote, black sheep end quote of the family. I remember asking my dad what that what that meant when he said that, and I got a very vague answer from him. He just said that Michael made poor decisions. It wasn't until recently reviewing my dad's notes and the ancestry stuff that I realized he had two wives, but I did not know about his trouble with the law, his recklessness in Flandro, South Dakota. I can't imagine the news of this getting back to his family and creating devastating results. What was it after he and Margaret were married? Yes, it was. Uh, what year was it? 1895. Can you imagine from Mar- the Meads family point of view, their new son-in-law gets in trouble like this? Oh my gosh, this is where her family lives, right? I'm just guessing this stunt must have broken any trust they had in him. And yes, it probably did break a lot of trust. And I wanted to just touch base on that when we were talking about that Flandro thing. Um, but I'm going to hold that for just a second. I wanted to read to you uh, the will, the last will and testament from Michael Bowden's mother, Bridget Bowden. And it's just pretty, it's very brief. It was recorded in Fillmore County, Minnesota. It starts, In the name of God, Amen. I, Bridget Bowden, of the village of the Spring Valley in the county of Fillmore and state of Minnesota, being of sound mind and memory, and uh, publish and declare this to be my last will and testament. First, 
I order and direct that my executor hereinafter named will pay all my debts and funeral expenses as soon as my deceased as as soon as soon after my deceased as conveniently may be. Second, after the payment of such funeral expenses and debts, I give, devise, and bequeath to my three children, she had four, to my three children, uh, John Bowden, Daniel Bowden, and Margaret Dean, all my property and estate. I'm trying to read it right now. Whether something personal or missed and wherever located in the same shall be at the time of my death. Share and share alike to have and to hold the same as thine absolutely. And as, 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 it looks like assign, assign me favors. Now, this is the second paragraph of her will, and her writing is very difficult to read, but I make no permit, I make no provisions, and this my last will for my son, Michael Bowden, or his issues in case he should die before my death, and this omission is intentional and not occasioned by accident or mistake. Lastly, I make constitute and appoint my son John Bowden to be the executor of my last will and testament, hereby revoking all former wills by me made. In testimony whereof I have unto and subscribe my name and affix the seal on this 29th day of January, 1915. And she signs it, Bridget X. Bowden. So there you have it. So she leaves everything to her Three children, John Bowden, Daniel P. Bowden, and Margaret A. Dean, which is Bowden. So she had one daughter, three sons. And in the second paragraph, I make no provisions for my son, Michael Bowden. That's my grandfather. Sadly, then she says, or his issues. So an issue in that day, or even now, if you say, you know, my issues, it's the heirs. It's the children. So she didn't want to leave anything to even her grandchildren. She didn't. Uh, Margaret Grace, who was alive from the first marriage, maybe they were friends and maybe she was slipping money to them on the side to Margaret Mead and for helping to raise Margaret Grace Bowden after Michael left and went to Michigan. But when he had a second wife and another life or any kind of life in Chicago, um, she made no provisions or had any intention of leaving anything to Joey Bowden, my mother, or to Mary Bowden, my, my, my aunt. And I feel sorry about that, which is there was a story I told when I watched my Aunt Mary and my mom at the perfume counter in Macy's. They had so little time as sisters together growing up, and they had to deal with a lot with their father and the dynamics of their parents' marriage. And then to be thought of so poorly like this by a grandmother so far away who never even knew them. I just think that's such a, such a, a sad thing, you know, such a huge miss because... Joey Bowden would have really loved to have probably met her grandmother, but you know she got the she got the short end of the stick along with Mary Bowden because of what their father Michael Bowden did and his choices in life. And um, this last will and testament, <laughs> boy, this thing lives on in perpetuity, right? I mean, there is just no getting around that. I mean, it doesn't matter that that instrument is going to live on for a long time. Now, the last thing is Georgia was talking about the debacle in Flandreau, uh, South Dakota, and how it must have been awful when Margaret Mead's family realized their new son-in-law was involved in a home invasion, et cetera, et cetera. Remember I talked to you about that? Well, I wanted to follow up a little bit because 
I always think when somebody has been victimized and we put far too much emphasis on who the perpetrator is, I always think it's really cool to eh, take a circle back around and let's talk about the victim. Remember I said we, we need to do victimology. You need to study the victim. How did that happen? Who's the victim? Who are they? Uh, how, how did they know the perpetrator? Uh, what, what was the means of this, the motive? Um, they had an opportunity to break into this home. I mean, what was the dynamic, dynamics there? So I went to the Sioux Research Museum, and there's a website. You can do Sioux Research for the Dakota, the Lakota, and the Dakota Indian, Native American. And I'm going to read to you a little bit about what I found out about Granny Weston and Eliza Elizabeth Weston, the two Native American women that Michael Bowden, Ed Crabtree, George Ryan, and Ella Muir accosted the night that they broke into these two women's home. In searching for these Native American women uh, from this court matter, because, so as to document a relevant backstory and to conduct a proper victimology in this case, I found an 1885 Flandreau Native American census under the Sioux Research Foundation of the Dakota, Lakota, and Nakota tribes in South Dakota. Eliza Weston's Native American name, that's the daughter, was Tatio Yan John Wen. It's Tatio T A T E O John John. J-A-N-J-A-N-W-I-N, Tatio Janjawin. Granny Mary, okay, she took the name Mary, so she was actually Mary Weston, that was her uh, non-Native American name. Granny Mary Weston's Native American name was Hihotawin, H-E-H-O-T-E-W-I-N. Hihotawin means what they have tried to say is means gray or brown horn woman. Now, Granny Mary West, Weston, he hooked to win, is on the Flandreau Indian census records, and they call it the Flandreau Indian, not Native American, Flandreau Indian uh, census records, in uh, 1885 through 1898. And she was 71 years old in the 1885 census. And her name on there is Mary Weston. She is not listed as Hihatawin, or Eliza is not listed as Tatiojanjawin. Their Native American name is, oh wait, I take that back. Yes, their Native American name is there, but it's very hard to read. But they have this adopted name. Granny Weston, the older woman, she died in 1899 at the age of 85 years in Moody Flandro. She died only four years after that home invasion raid by Michael Bowden Jr. and his friends. At the time of the home invasion raid, Granny Weston was 81 years old. There, her daughter, Eliza Elizabeth Tatiojanjawin, was 45 years old uh, on the night that they broke into their home. So this was an 81-year-old woman and a 45-year-old woman that they were doing this to. Now, Eliza Weston, the one in the article that says she doesn't have a, you know, the most um, reputable uh, or uh, respected reputations, she was never married. It is believed she had a son and a daughter, and they both died young. This is from a Native American researcher who knows a lot about the Dakota, the Sioux uh, tribe, the Dakota, uh, Sioux, Lakota, Nakota, in that area. Uh, Granny was the older Indian woman. This is what this, this is the fact. Granny was the older Indian woman who, quote, roamed, end quote, the streets of Flandreau. So I guess she was older and she'd just shuffle around Flandreau in the town. So maybe the guys had seen her but she was 81 years old. Maybe she even had dementia of some, some kind. Um, her, her daughter's, I said her daughter was Eliza. Well, Eliza 
uh, had a brother. So old Granny Weston had a son named Philip Weston. Uh, he was, um, so he was the son of John and Mary. He helped to win. Philip Weston, he helped to win old Granny. He had a daughter and he named her Mary. They did a lot of Mary John names when they were trying to get into society. Um, Granny Weston's grandson was named Henry Weston. He was a son of Philip Weston. Henry was on the Yankton Indian census records as late as 1937. Henry's actual, this is uh, Granny Weston's grandson, Henry, his actual Native American name was Hokie, and he was born in 1872. Granny Weston was known as Old Eve among her people. Old Eve. She had four husbands. Granny Weston did. So when uh, Michael Bowden and the, and the boys broke into her home and um, she was 81 years old, she had already had four husbands, she, but none of them were there. Um, they were gone. But uh, she, her first husband was uh, Big Thunder. Her second husband was called Fearful Face, uh, Wamdiokia. Her third husband was Wapiyamikasta, which is Cloud Man. And her fourth husband was Paul Matsakutumani, which was known as Eagle Help. Cloud Man, her third husband, he changed his name to Weston. So the, all the brothers of Cloud Man, they changed their name to Weston too. So um, they had, I guess in this Weston clan in Flandro, they had a David Weston who had a name of Owankadua, Eliza Weston, who was Tateo Janjanwin, John Weston, who was Matogi, Philip Weston, who was Marpi Wicasta, and Robert Weston. And I can't pronounce his Indian name. Now, in this area, there was a guy by the name of Frederick Spafford. He was, doc he was a physician. He came to the Dakota Territory in 1884, and he established a medical and surgical practice, and he wanted to participate in the founding of institutions for education for the generations to come. Um, now, he was a country doctor. He spent 38 of his 67 years as a physician in Flandreau, South Dakota, uh, beginning uh, when the area was still called Dakota Territory. And when they started to give land away for free. If you went to, land, if you went to Flandreau, you could get land for free. It was under the Homestead Act. But Dr. Spafford continued his surgical and medical practice until his death in 1922. Spafford was, Dr. Spafford was the first mayor of Flandro, and he was considered to be the first librarian in the area because he's, he is known to have a vast uh, personal library. He actually has a painting. Um, it was an oil painting of he hoped to win, Granny Weston, the actual Granny Weston. Um, and I, between you and me and doing the research I did, I am willing to bet a lot of money that Dr. Frederick A. Spafford delivered Margaret Grace Bowden, who was the first daughter of Michael J. Bowden Jr., my grandfather, and Margaret Mead's daughter in Flandreau in 1895. He was there. He was the only doctor in Flandreau at that time. So Margaret Grace Bowden was probably delivered by Dr. Frederick Spafford, and you can look him up. He has quite a reputation. So that's going to be the end of this episode. It was rather long, but I hope I answered a lot of questions for you, keeping it interesting. I wish you all a very, very wonderful day, and um, good luck out there with the coronavirus. If you want to know anything uh, about how it, how it relates to the Spanish flu of 1818, you can look up the Spanish flu. So uh, anyway, hope you all are doing well, and I will talk to you again when I open up a new episode 11. Take care, everyone. Bye.